Exodus chapter 40 as we bring to close today a series of sermons through this great book. Exodus chapter 40. January 1945. American forces battle for the liberation of the Philippines against occupying Japanese troops. As the American army advanced, the Japanese burned alive 150 American prisoners of war at a camp on the island of Palawan. Fearing a similar atrocity, Lieutenant General Walter Kruger assigned Lieutenant Colonel Henry Mucci and his 6th Ranger Battalion the mission to rescue the allied prisoners at the camp of Kabantuan. On the evening of January 30th, 127 Army Rangers under the command of Captain Robert Prince, supported by 200 Filipino guerrillas, led a dramatic sneak attack upon the compound. Vastly outnumbered, the Army Rangers dramatically freed 511 frail, starving, disease-ridden prisoners on that unforgettable night. At 8.15 p.m., Captain Prince shot a flare into the night sky, signaling that the improbable mission was complete. But in another sense, the mission was not finished at all, was it? You do not free 500 dying prisoners from their captors and say, well, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Good luck finding your way home and walk away into the night, do you? Storming the compound, killing 523 enemy troops, losing only four Americans in the attack. That was very dramatic. And it's punctuated by that flare going up into the night sky. But through the remainder of that night, these soldiers led the way through many dangers, toils, and snares as they escorted their liberated comrades to safety through enemy-occupied territory. The mission was not complete the moment the prisoners were freed. It was complete when they were delivered safely home. Christian, do you sometimes feel like a prisoner that's just been released God gloriously liberates you from hell through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and your response to it, you know that your sins are forgiven, that he's delivered you from a power that held you in bondage. But then do you sense sometimes that God is at the gate and says, okay, soldier, you're on your own from here. See you in heaven. Is that our God? God is our Savior from sin and from hell. And when God storms the gates of hell and rescues one of His children with the gospel, we can also know that He guides that child all the way home. If God has redeemed from bondage your soul, he will bring it home. We have been given liberty. 
liberty from our sin through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have that confidence today, you can have the confidence that he will protect you, that he will guide you all the way home. You may indeed pass through many dangers, toils, and snares along the way. But his presence will go with you until you rest safely in his presence. It is on this glorious note that the book of Exodus comes to a close and points us forward into the rest of the Pentateuch. Think of our journey through this book of Exodus. There has been this dramatic deliverance from Egypt that God has orchestrated by His miraculous powers to show the glory of His name. He delivers the Israelites from bondage. He has given to them in recent times here the design of the tabernacle where He will meet with them. There's that horrifying period of sin where Israel turns from God and worships the golden calf, creates its own worship, its own way, and tries to force the hand of God in spiritual impatience. And then there is Moses' intercession with God and the forgiveness that God gives to the nation. God comes to dwell indeed among his people in this tabernacle now in order to escort them all the way home to the promised land. We find his instructions concerning the erection of this tabernacle in chapter 40 and verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. In chapters 35 through 39, all of the parts of the tabernacle were crafted by the artisans, by the uh, craftsmen of Israel. Now God instructs Moses to assemble it all, to erect it. We speak in terms of construction in our culture. Construction is putting it all together. But here the construction idea is the manufacture of the parts or or the building of the parts and the crafting of the parts. Now it's time to assemble it. Remember, this is a tent that will go up and come down and go up and come down as Israel moves toward the promised land. Erection day is scheduled for 14 days prior to the first anniversary of Passover when Israel will commemorate her deliverance from Egyptian bondage. And so God now lays out here something of a packing list, a summary of the component parts that will form the temple complex. Verse 3, And you shall put in the ark of the testimony... And you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it. And you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the cord all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. You can picture it in your mind's eye, the various places where this furniture is to be placed and how the tabernacle is to be laid out. Something again of a packing list here. All of these things have been described. But now God brings each component part before Moses' mind. And before any of these things are usable, however, they must be consecrated, verse 9. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. A summary statement which he'll now develop here in the, in the uh, verses to follow. But the oil is to be used to consecrate each of the parts of the tabernacle. That is to make it holy. The Hebrew word that is used there is a word we usually translate holy. Or here translated consecrate. To set it apart for the exclusive service of God. 
Each of these pieces so set aside. Verse 10, now as he takes them individually, you shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father and that they may serve me as priests and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations." So both inanimate objects and the priest must be consecrated. All of the priests will take ceremonial washing, purification ritual for each one. There is the unique vestments of Aaron that are uniquely consecrated. As the high priest, he alone will wear these garments. And then there is the vestments of all of the priests, which are also consecrated. In verses 14 and 15, we find the construction of the tabernacle with this strong emphasis on careful obedience to God's instructions. I said 14 and 15. Let me look at verse 16, actually. This, this Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded, so he did. Moses obeys the Lord. He follows through on the instructions that God has laid out for him. And we find this emphasis throughout preceding passage as well. Remember back to chapter 39 and verse 42. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. And here again, this recurring refrain that Moses did all that the Lord commanded. Now, here in verses 16 and following, we find the actual erection of the tabernacle Assembling it here, verse 17, In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. Before we proceed, just stop for a moment. Remember chapters 25 through 31 where the tabernacle is described in a sense of blueprint. Remember, we have these chapters repeated, chapter 35 through 39. This great emphasis on this edifice and meeting with God here. And so, in a sense, we have the same now. All of the pieces, all of the furniture, all of the parts of the tabernacle, the priests, they're all mentioned again in the first part of 40, and again repeated the actual erection and establishment of the priesthood here. God is seeking to get our attention, to say this is a very important development as God comes to dwell among his people here in this tabernacle. Everything must be just right. And through all of this repetition, we see God laying out how he will be approached and Moses and the people of Israel obeying the plan of God. As we go through, as we plow through this section, watch for the phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses. We find it there in verse 16, all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. And now watch for the phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses, beginning at verse 19. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle, and he put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony, and he put it into the ark, and put the poles on the ark, and set the mercy seat above the ark. 
We have here, of course, the law of God written on these tablets of stone and placed down in the box that is the ark and the cover or the mercy seat then placed on top of that open ark. And on this seat or lid, the blood of sacrificial animals would be placed once each year to atone for Israel's sin. Then verse 21 And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, and he set up the veil of the screen, and screened the ark of the testimony, forming the holy of holies, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 22, he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, that is outside that inner veil, that inner sanctum, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil. So right in front of the Ark of the Covenant, but the veil coming between. And he burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle. And he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. So now, again, we're outside the tabernacle proper, the actual tent And the first thing that we see as we come in is this altar on which animals will be burned and sacrificed. And he set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle. So here we're looking at that screen or that fence that goes all the way around the outside. And he set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Imagine the glory of this day in this situation. I remember when we built the interior of this building, the exterior was here, but when we took on the walls uh, for the first day. We had the building project scheduled and there was a lot of adrenaline pumping in this small assembly on that day as we began to lay out these walls. And for something that's very unusual in my experience in life, I had car problems that morning. That's a joke, but uh, my car didn't work. I can't remember if it was a flat tire or something, but I wasn't gonna miss the start of this construction project. I got on my bicycle and rode over here that day. And when I got here, I was really disappointed to find that back wall was already standing. I missed the start. There were people here who were so excited to get the walls going and to put it up and start to start the work. I think that first wall went up faster and a wall probably should go up. So those of you sitting next to it there, you might want to always keep that in mind. There's another reason we ask people to sit forward in this room. <laughs> Actually, it's obviously quite sound, but the great enthusiasm is the thing that I remember on that first day. And yes, along the way, we ran out of gas over the next months from time to time and had to keep retooling and restarting again. But I remember the great enthusiasm that was there. Can you imagine the excitement in Israel as this tabernacle takes shape? Think of it from the standpoint of all of the people of God bringing together all of their gifts 
laying down their gold and silver and bronze and their materials and the acacia wood and all of these gifts that the people had brought together for this great work of God. And imagine the many hours of diligent labor that have gone into crafting this exquisite place and all of its furniture and the faithful direction of Moses. They've been here camped at Mount Sinai for nine months now. And this whole concept of tabernacle has been building over these months, and now here it is, all constructed before them. In one day the job is done, and it glistens with resplendent glory and exquisite artisanship. And there stand the priests, all dressed and ceremonially cleansed and ready for service. Everything is right as it ought to be. Done to specification. However, all is not well. Not yet. Imagine a building much greater than the one in which we are seated now. A church building that has been constructed by the very best craftsmen with tremendous splendor and beauty. The construction project is finished, and in this particular project, there is never to be a service in this building until everything is done. And on the night before the first service, the first Lord's Day, when the church will come and fill this beautiful building, the custodian goes through and does final checks and makes sure that everything is right, and it's past midnight. It's quiet. And before he locks the door, he decides to walk through the building and just to admire every room and all of the ornate decorations and the beautiful windows and all that has been done to create this beautiful building for God's people and for their worship. And as he goes from place to place, he admires. Then as he finally comes to leave late in the middle of the night and locks the door, there's an overwhelming sense that nothing's right yet. It's not until the next day, on the Lord's Day, when the people come in and fill the building with life and spirit that all will be right. And so we have here at this tabernacle, it is an exquisite place on earth. The material has gold, parts of the material closest to the Holy of Holies has gold threaded into it. There are seven tons of metal in this complex, 2,000 pounds of gold. It is quite a place, but it's just a shell. All of it rests on the presence of God here. And suddenly... The cloud that shrouds Mount Sinai and shrouds the brilliant light of God's glorious presence lifts off that mountain and begins to descend. We don't have any particular description of it here, but we know where it is. It's on the top of Mount Sinai. And now the presence of God lifts off of that mountain and comes down to this place and fills it and covers it with the glory of God. Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is that pillar of cloud that led Israel out of Egypt, chapter 13. 
This is the cloud that delivered Israel from the Egyptian army, chapter 14. This is the cloud that led Israel through the desert to the base of Mount Sinai, that rocked Mount Sinai, settling upon it with awesome power, shaking the earth with thunders and lightnings and this presence of God resting there. This is the cloud into which Moses ventured to meet with God on the mountain in chapters 33 and 34. All of this glorious power and guidance, defeating the strongest army on earth, providing for God's people and leading them, all of this awesome power now comes to settle down in their tent. As God promised, the God of grace and splendor has come to dwell among His people. Not out in front only, not on Mount Sinai only, but now here right among them. This tabernacle does not merely symbolize God's presence, it houses God's presence. God was in the house. The transcendent and holy God who dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6.16, and who fills the universe, occupies the confined space of this tabernacle. It's almost overwhelming to contemplate. He holds the world together. He is everywhere present, but he's here. He's in this space at this time in some unique way. God's transcendence is not overwhelmed here by his imminence by any means. Transcendence, if the word's not familiar, the idea of God as high and lifted up. The greatness of God, the separateness of God, the holiness of God. The God that we cannot approach because of His greatness and His holiness. This transcendent God comes down to dwell among His people in imminence, in closeness. But His transcendence is not overwhelmed by His imminence. The Israelites do not storm into the tent and hoist God on their shoulders, and run Him around the camp celebrating. There's no parade that follows with God on a cart. God resides among them as the holy God to whom access is highly restricted. A point the next verse confirms so clearly. Verse 35, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is Moses we're talking about here. This is the Moses who entered the cloud on Mount Sinai. This is the Moses who saw the trailing edge of God's glory, who God is close to looking truly into the face of God as a human being perhaps has ever come prior to Christ. Here is this man who's known the presence of God and has talked with God face to face, it says, I think as a figure of speech, but he has had open conversations with God. And he can't even go in. Why? Because the cloud fills the tabernacle. There's no explanation given specifically as to why, but it's the cloud. And it is, secondly, the glory. That is the light. The radiating light of God expels Moses. There's going to be no sense here that as God dwells with his people, he somehow has gotten rid of his transcendence. 
He still is the holy God, high and lifted up, and you will approach Him on His terms, in His time, in His way. But He's with them. So though restricted in access, in fact, requiring the blood of sacrificial animals, which will be described in the book of Leviticus, though requiring restriction, yet God dwells among His people. And he will guide them from here. Verse 36, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. We see here clearly that God did not save Israel from Egyptian bondage to let her wander aimlessly in the desert. God rescued Israel to fulfill his promise to Abraham, to escort Israel back to the promised land. And God had come to dwell among his people in order to keep his promise to Moses as well. My presence will go with you. The presence of God, we notice here, moves. That's significant. We need to wake up and consider that point in light of the idolatrous world in which we live and in which they live, this God moves. You don't set him up on a shelf and nail his feet to the shelf so that he doesn't topple over. This God moves, and he moves on his own. He moves when he's ready to move. When the cloud lifts up, the people of Israel move out. When the cloud settles over the tabernacle, Israel will stay right where they are. We do not have an immovable presence like the golden calf. The golden calf in chapter 32 had to be carted around. Should Israel have ever brought it with her, should Moses not have reduced it to Kool-Aid and put it in the water and given it to Israel to drink, they would have had to haul it around with them. wherever Israel chose, and whenever Israel chose to move. But so it is with the false gods. They always move at our initiative. One thing you learn as a follower of the God of Scripture is he moves on his own initiative. He moves when he chooses and where he chooses. And our job is to walk and follow Verse 38, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. That is this great cloud, perhaps largely in a pillar, in the daytime appeared as a cloud as it shrouded the glory of God, and then at night became a pillar of fire. Some argument as to whether there were two clouds, but I think probably most likely here, there is the shining glory of God from within that cloud that makes it look like glowing, fiery pillar of light at nighttime. And in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys, they see this cloud with them, dwelling among them, leading them out, and sometimes leading them to stay, shrouding the brilliant light of the Lord. When God storms the gates of hell with the gospel, When he liberates one of his children from the bondage of sin, 
He never abandons that child. Remember what God says of Israel in this context. Israel is my son. And as he delivers Israel from Egyptian bondage, he leads Israel to the promised land. We are learning here of the nature of God. Times have changed. We stand on the other side of the cross to which all of this is really pointing. Jesus fulfilling all of these parts of the tabernacle and all that they stood for. But we learn here of the nature of our Father's heart. He doesn't come and rescue people to leave them on their own in the dark. He rescues us to take us home. The gospel is a rescue not only from the grip of Satan and the destiny of hell. The gospel includes the assurance of the ongoing guidance and protection of God until He brings us all the way home. We could argue, in fact, for the perseverance of God's people, and we could argue here for the assurance of salvation, that it can never be lost. We could argue that right here from this text of Exodus, which the rest of the New Testament makes so very clear. God doesn't liberate you from sin to leave you to find your way home on your own. And let's say again, as a kingdom of priests, 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9, we're on a journey of distinct destination, aren't we? We're heading somewhere pointedly, as was Israel. The journey is filled with many dangers, toils, and snares. Was there anybody here when we sang that song earlier? I just thought of it as we were singing it. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. Was there anybody here saying, I wish he would befriend me? Did that go through your heart? I wish he would befriend me. Perhaps you come here today with no confidence that you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. The friendship of God is there as He holds open arms to you and invites you to embrace the gospel. But perhaps there were some who know Christ as Savior who were saying that very thing. Oh, if He would only befriend me with His love. May the Spirit in His gentle way rebuke us unless we need something more stiff. But let's hear it again from Romans 8 and verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Has he befriended me? He has sent the Lord Jesus Christ to come to this earth to die in my place and pay the penalty of my sin. He has proven for time and eternity that He's befriended me, that He's rescued me, that He loves me. He's come into the dark of the camp and in dramatic fashion has paid the penalty of my sin and brought me out into the freedom of His righteousness. And will I then say, as the follower of Christ, as one saved by His grace, will I then say, will you befriend me? Will you take me home? He's taking you home. One step at a time, He is there with you.
Now we need to balance transcendence and imminence. The fact that God is with us does not mean then that we tell God when He's going to move and how He's going to move. And that is one of the struggles of faith for us. I have yet to meet a child who doesn't think he or she has it figured out better than mom and dad at times. And I've never met a child of God who doesn't think at times that we've got it figured out better than God does. And we may not say it in those words. They don't sound very good. But the fact is, it's a struggle of faith sometimes when we have to wait upon the transcendent God. We must approach God on His terms. He is holy. He is running a universe. He is the sovereign God of heaven and earth. And we must let God be God and come to Him on His terms. But let us rejoice in this and say with Old Testament Israel, He is with us. He has given us this promise in His Word. Jesus tabernacled among us, John says in chapter 1 and verse 14. In Colossians 1, Paul writes, In Him all the fullness of God was pleased, hear the word again, was pleased to dwell. In the tabernacle, Jesus Christ, God's glory, came to this earth to dwell, to live. Colossians 2 and verse 9, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. As God in His glorious presence comes and dwells in the tabernacle, so God dwells in all His fullness in the human body of Jesus Christ. He is God and man in one. He is, as Hebrews says, the radiance of the glory of God. God has come to dwell among us in the person of Jesus Christ. He is with us, and He will never leave us. Having come to tabernacle here, having come to rescue us from sin, He will take us home. This is His promise. Hear it again, Matthew 28 and verse 20. I am with you to the end of the age. That pretty much covers everything. I am with you as my followers to the very end of the age. In John chapter 10, verse 27 and following, he says, My sheep, Jesus saying, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. If we could just draw back on the analogy with which we started this morning. The voice sounds. The friendly troops call us out. And we come out of the prison gates. We've heard the voice and we're free, but notice what Jesus goes on to say. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Once He takes us from the prison of sin, He holds us in His hand and He will not let go. Ever. Hebrews 13 and verse 5, we have the assurance from his mouth, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? John 16 and verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now wait a minute. He's here, he's dwelling with us. His presence will go through with us to the end of the age. He will never lose us or forsake us in any way. But now he says, I'm going away. 
We know the point, obviously, in John 16. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. As Jesus ascends to heaven, he pours out his Spirit upon his church, and the Holy Spirit comes to take up residence within our tent. Comes to tabernacle in us. The Spirit of God living within us and guiding us, whispering to us God's leading and purposes, convincing us of sin and righteousness and judgment and showing us the way home. He will be with us. He will never leave us. And He will take us all the way home. Hear the words of Revelation 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. This is the end to which we are headed. He is with us. He is dwelling within us through His Spirit and leading us home. But when we come ultimately to the end, He will dwell with us in a unique and visible way. His glory will shine off our faces. The God who rescues from hell, will walk with you all the way to glory where your forgiveness and your welcome rest not on the blood of an animal placed on the lid of an ark, but on the authority of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who was placed there in your behalf. It is there in heaven as believers that our forgiveness rests, and it rests on Jesus Christ, who, as Hebrews 9 says, hear it, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. How glad I am to know that he conveys me home, and how glad I am to know that as I get home, it's the blood of Christ that's there pleading for me, not a list of my good works not a list of my family connections, not a list of the good deeds that I have done to secure the favor of the Lord. What will be there pleading for me is the blood of Jesus Christ shed in my place to pay the penalty of my sin and His resurrection power. That's what will be there to meet me. In other words, what meets me in heaven is what is with me every day of the way, all the way to the end, all the way home. And through all eternity, we will sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. The trials of life will crumble before the glory of heaven, and we will rejoice in God's presence forever and ever, singing the refrain from Moses' song in chapter 15. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, and doing wonders? This will be our song, and this is our hope. Has anyone called you out of the compound? Every one of us is born in that compound of sin, shackled and bound and starving to death spiritually. We have no life, we have no hope, we have no future, we have nothing in Satan's prison. If you do not have confidence that there was a place in time, even if you're not able to entirely identify the precise moment in time, if you 
do not have a sense that one day Jesus Christ came and liberated you from sin, I plead with you to seek the face of God and to find that assurance. Nothing on this earth matters more than that. To know that God has liberated you through the gospel of Jesus Christ, has forgiven your sin and brought you out from the gates of hell. Do you know of that day, of that turning point in your life? Do you know that it has taken place? If not, seek his face. Seek his forgiveness. Seek his salvation. And for those of us who do know that, you know that glorious day that you were liberated. You know that day when glory came down and when God's presence took up residence in your heart. Let me remind you and encourage you with all of my soul to remember and never forget He will never leave you or forsake you. On that great raid that took place back in 1945, the story usually gets centered upon the deliverance from the prison of those 511 prisoners of war. What doesn't get told quite as much is the harrowing journey that night to get them through all kinds of difficulties and trials. In the end, the Americans among those 511 were put on a ship and sent back to America with the absolute assurance from the Empire of Japan that they'd be on their tail with submarines and were going to bring them down. It doesn't end until it ends. There are many dangers, toils, and snares along the way. But if Jesus Christ has paid the penalty of your sin and you have placed your faith savingly in His work, you can know that when He rescues you from the prison, He'll take you all the way home. He will. He's with you. Trust Him. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I plead for Your salvation to be realized, to be given as a gift to those who know You not as Savior. We cannot demand of You what You will do in Your sovereign grace, but we plead knowing that you are not willing that any should perish. That your heart desire would be realized in the life of anyone who knows you not as Savior in our midst today. We do not know all of your purposes, and again, we do not demand of you anything that is not your will. But we do plead that you would bring people to saving grace. For those of us who are your people, we just pause in prayer. And as these prayers ascend, they are themselves a testimony that we believe you are with us. We do not lift our prayers to a dead idol. We lift our prayers, holy God, to you, our Savior, who moves. 
God, as you move in our lives, forgive us when we doubt your love. Forgive us for falling so short. Forgive us for our lack of faith and confidence and trust in your purposes for us. And God, we are weak in the knees as we consider the ways in which our faith will be put to the test in the days ahead before we meet you. But we praise you with great joy of heart and thanksgiving to know that you will go with us. Take us home. One step at a time, may your presence be known. May you guide us and direct us, Sovereign Lord. Through Christ we pray. Amen.